Welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for today, Friday, February 28th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Let's start out by taking a look at the weather for today. Increasing clouds with an easterly wind at 6 to 12 miles per hour and a high of 45. Tonight, a shower early, cloudy, with an easterly wind at 6 to 12 miles per hour and a low of 32. Wednesday, there will be times of clouds and sun. There will be a west-northwesterly wind at 7 to 14 miles per hour, with a high Wednesday of 48 and a low of 28. Thursday, low clouds and colder. The wind will be east-northeast at 7 to 14 miles per hour, with a high of 38 and a low of 24. On Friday, sun and some clouds, with a Northeasterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour. A high will be 42 and the low 25. Then on Saturday, mostly cloudy with a westerly wind at 8 to 16 miles per hour. The high will be 45 and the low of 24. So let's hit the front page of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier where there's a story written by Andy Malone that says voters to decide on HCC bond issue. Dateline, Waterloo. Hawkeye community college officials are confident $35 million in general obligation bonds to fund three facility projects will better position their campus to serve future needs of the state and local community. But first, at least 60% of voters will need to approve a March 7th referendum to renew the institution's bond tax levy. It wouldn't be an additional tax and merely continues for the next 10 years what was introduced in 2015 when voters passed a ballot question for the construction of the Adult Learning Center as well as renovations in to Grundy Hall. The referendum is broken down into two phases, the first including the costliest of the endeavors. Butler Hall would be renovated and expanded to increase offerings and better accommodate vocational and trades programs, apprenticeships, and certifications under one roof. The phase also factors in the least costliest of the projects, which is the repurposing of space in Bremer Hall for a STEM learning center. The repurposed area would be an accredited Challenger Center, utilized by school districts across the state to engage 5th to 8th grade students and get them excited about science, technology, math, and engineering early in their lives. Two to three years after those two projects are completed, the second phase would focus on the expansion of the college's Law Enforcement Training Academy, currently housed in Chickasaw Hall, as well as what's north of the college's Regional Transportation Training Center and south of the main campus. Officials said the property taxes for the bond issue, if it is approved, would equate to approximately $1.20 per month for a $100,000 home or $14.40 a year. Hawkeye hopes to use the funds for its technical trades to create more opportunities and stackable credentials and short-term training that gets Iowans into the workforce earlier and allows workers to advance quickly. Todd Holcomb, president, says you're seeing more integration between credit and non-credit. That's really the future of community college education. 
The college is seeing a 15 to 20 percent increase in demand for training in jobs ranging from auto mechanics to heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, welding, plumbing, electrical, construction, and other hands-on professions. The trades in Iowa are dominated by baby boomers, and the tail end of the baby boom generation is 1964, so a lot of those individuals are going to be retiring out of the workforce, he said. A little more than 50% of the $35 million in bonds would go toward addressing the workforce shortage by expanding Butler Hall into a 60,000-square-foot facility. Butler Hall and Bremer Hall house technical education programs along with the Cedar Falls Center on Nordic Drive, which is about a 15-minute drive away. Essentially, the project will consolidate the programs inside Butler Hall, and that will make way for the STEM Learning Center in Bremer Hall. Some classes will continue at the Cedar Falls Center, but the long-term future of the space is to be discussed. Work will include gutting the building and bringing in new HVAC, electrical and plumbing. It's as much as 10 years since any major work was completed there. Efficiencies would be created in terms of instructors and equipment, and it would be more flexible for students to gain some training, increasing the opportunity for more certifications and better jobs. Jim Conradi, an HVAC instructor, said, We'll have all the same equipment and everything that we need instead of doubling up on it. There's some equipment at the Cedar Falls site that I would love to have over here because it's a lot newer than what we have here. He feels it opens up the college for more full-fledged labs and small mock-ups that currently can't be added because it is, quote, bursting at the seams. Joe Schwartz, one of Conradi's students from Wacon, says, Our construction class builds houses as a group, but they have to outsource all of the HVAC and electrical stuff. If all that was in one building, then all that could be done more efficiently and you wouldn't have to outsource. Hawkeye's offerings were attractive to Schwartz, who started at a four-year institution, but later took a liking to construction. Classmate Ethan O'Neill from Wacon had a similar experience taking up the HVAC program because of his father's work expertise. He said, I wanted to try a blue-collar job, and I tried this out, and I'm really liking it. Hawkeye hopes to engage the next generation of scientists and mathematicians through the development of the STEM Education Center, where it anticipates using about 15,000 square feet in Bremer Hall. It is expected to be the least costly of the three projects, at about 15% of the total, and has the potential to leave a mark on thousands of students from all over the state. The name Challenger Center is a tribute to the crew of the space shuttle that exploded just after liftoff in 1986, killing all aboard. The opportunity arises from the college's STEM trailer, which is a lab on wheels. The Challenger Center would focus on space exploration with simulations, role-playing, and hands-on learning that can be applied across multiple uh, disciplines as well as various soft skills. Holcomb said, Research says that's really a key time when students are trying to decide what career field I'm going to get into. He pointed out that 
55% of STEM careers come as a result of an associate's degree or other post-secondary program that doesn't take four years to complete. And opportunities exist for high school and college students, too. Employers could use the Center for team-building exercises and perhaps include a trip to the Lost Island theme parks less than 10 minutes away. It's a cliché, but the sky is the limit, said Provost Lynn Legrone. That's one thing that excites me, is I think students start to fall off the math-science path pretty early on, and it's going to give that student who's not quite sure about what he or she is interested in, a chance to think about what's possible. It's no secret law enforcement agencies are struggling with recruiting and hiring. Hawkeye officials plan improvements to its facilities that would help address the officer shortage. While plans for the facility upgrades are furthest out as part of the second phase, law enforcement courses would be consolidated in a single location and be better suited to offer continual training. Right now, training and classes are offered at Chickasaw Hall and near the college's Regional Transportation Training Center. The current setup includes an indoor and outdoor firing range to allow for year-round training. Plans may result in a new facility being constructed and Chickasaw Hall being demolished. Most notably, Hawkeye hopes to offer a Level 1 Law Enforcement Training Academy, which would be the only one in Northeast Iowa. Level 1 is more involved training for those without police science and criminology degrees, and is only offered in Des Moines at the moment. Recruits spend four months away from home and family to complete this training. Holcomb said, we think it'd provide better work-life balance for the recruits. We think we can do a very good job in helping to educate them and train them, and it could be a much easier recruiting cell to potential law enforcement officers to do the training locally here in the Northeast. Ben Scholl is the law enforcement director and said, expanding the facility would enhance skills-based learning and allow the college to use the technology to its full potential. More modern learning spaces are needed, he said, and more integrated ones would eliminate the travel back and forth between various classes. Scholl said, we lose a little bit of efficiency with our cadets. By being all in one location, that will give us more time in the classroom, spend more time doing the skill-based learning, and fine-tuning the skills before we send them to their agencies. He envisions being able to be offering more dynamic scenario training and Hawkeye becoming a one-stop shop. He said almost anybody can do the basic drills, but there are some other skills that we could do and offer to agencies. Also on page one is a story written by Clark Kaufman called Waverly Nurse Loses New Job. An Iowa nurse who was sanctioned by the State Board of Nursing for adopting the baby of a former patient was fired last week after the board mistakenly claimed she had been charged with financially exploiting a patient. In January, the Iowa Board of Nursing sanctioned Miriam Simon of Waverly for violating state regulations pertaining to patient privacy and for attempting to initiate an emotional, social, or business relationship with the patient for personal gain regardless of the patient's consent. Those charges stemmed from Simon's decision to adopt the baby of a patient she treated while working in the 
a unit at Decor's Winnesheek Medical Center in September of 2021. The hospital fired Simon after learning of the adoption in 2022. The Iowa Capitol Dispatch reported that the board's sanctions on February 17th and five days later on Wednesday, Simon was fired by her new employer, Cresco's Regional Health Services of Howard County. The Cresco Hospital apparently based its decision, at least in part, on incorrect information. The Board of Nursing had transmitted to a national database called Nurses. The Nurses.com website is the National Council of State Boards of Nursing's public repository of disciplinary data. Simon said that while checking the Nurses database, hospital officials in Cresco saw erroneous information suggesting Simon had been sanctioned by the Board of Nursing for the financial exploitation of a patient, which is a serious offense that can lead to criminal charges. After Simon's attorney contacted the Board of Nursing about the error, a board official apologized and the information on the Nurses website was corrected. Simon said Friday that the correction, so far, hasn't made any difference in her employment status. She's still without a job. She said Friday, part of me now is like, do I even want to be a nurse? And is all this even worth it? But nursing is my career, my passion, and my whole life. I'm good at it, and my patients love me. My refrigerator door is covered with notes from patients, and I just feel like everything has been ripped out from under me, all for something I did purely out of love and compassion for this baby and his mother. The adopted child, named Ezra, is now 17 months old and in good health, but Simon said the board's actions have created a financial and emotional nightmare for her entire family, including the seven children she had before the adoption. She said, two of my kids have birthdays in a couple weeks. I've been crying, and they've been telling me, don't worry, don't buy me anything for my birthday. You know, things like that. These are things children shouldn't have to deal with, not having a birthday because their mom lost her job. According to the Board of Nursing, it was the 41-year-old Simon who had initiated efforts to adopt Ezra, but Simon said that's not accurate. She said that after raising seven children of her own, she initially had no interest at all in adopting a child until the birth mother contacted her through Facebook and raised the issue. Simon said Ezra's birth mother was in the United States on a visa and risked being deported if she dropped out of school to care for the child. Simon and the board eventually agreed to settle the charges against her with an agreement that stipulates she must complete 30 hours of educational training on patient privacy and take a three-day course in professional boundaries and ethics. Simon's attorney, Steve Lombardo of West Des Moines, said he's unhappy with the Iowa Board of Nursing because of the incorrect information that was relayed to nurses and because the nurses' site doesn't host the detailed board documents that show Simon never admitted any wrongdoing as part of her settlement agreement. Lombardi said, Why does the Iowa Board of Nursing make it so difficult to read what the truth is? He added that the Cresco Hospital currently employs nurses who have been sanctioned for violating patient privacy, which is the same offense Miriam Simon was accused of committing in the adoption case. Lombardi went on to say, Miriam Simon is being treated differently 
than the regional health services of Howard County's other nurse employees who have had the same or similar actions taken against them by the Iowa Board of Nursing. Officials at the Iowa Board of Nursing and Regional Health Services of Howard County didn't respond to requests for comment on the matter. On today's Cedar Valley page, we have a story that is credited to the entire courier staff. The headline says, Tax Help Offered for Free at UNI. Dateline Cedar Falls. University of Northern Iowa accounting students are providing free help preparing income tax returns through the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. The service will continue from 6 to 8 p.m. on Wednesdays through April 5th, excluding March 15th due to spring break. Returns for international students and scholars will be prepared beginning March 8th. Registration opens at 5.30 p.m. in room 223 of the Curris Business Building, and it closes at 7.30 p.m. Now, those with income of $60,000 or less are encouraged to arrive early to complete the intake interview process and allow students sufficient time to complete their return. Only a limited number of returns will be completed each night. Appointments may be scheduled by leaving a message, and here's the phone number, area code 319-273-2968. Call it and give them the best time to call back, or you can send an email request, and a representative will call or email within 24 to 48 hours to schedule the appointment. This year, a drop-off service is also available. Taxpayers who are not able to stay while their taxes are prepared may create a customer portal and scan their documents to the portal. A preparer will contact the taxpayer via Zoom to communicate during the tax preparation and quality review process. Further instructions will be provided at the time of drop-off. VITA VITA, was established by the Internal Revenue Service to help low income taxpayers who may find it difficult to pay for tax preparation services. The program also provides accounting students with an experimental learning opportunity to apply the skills they have learned. Accounting students are prepared to complete federal and Iowa tax returns for electronic filing. UNI's comprehensive tax course has equipped them with the knowledge, skill set, and resources needed to ensure accurate filings that meet all requirements of IRS certification standards. The students are also required to complete IRS certification testing at the advanced level prior to completing tax returns. Taxpayers seeking assistance should bring Social Security cards for the taxpayer, spouse, and dependents, valid photo identification, a copy of last year's federal and Iowa tax returns, Form W-2 wage and tax statement from each employer, Forms 1099 for such things as interest, dividends, or retirement payments, a list of other income and expenses, Form 1098-E, which is student loan interest statements, Form 1098-T, which is tuition payment statements, and also bring institutional billing statements. Also bring Form 1095-A if health insurance was purchased through the marketplace. Bring banking information like account and routing numbers for the automatic deposit of refunds and all other information pertinent to your 2022 tax return. 
a Viridian Credit Union representative will be on-site to open accounts for taxpayers who would need a checking savings account, which can be used for the direct deposit option. If you would like more information, you can visit the VITA website or call the UNI Department of Accounting. Their phone number is 319-273-2394. Here's a story written by Jeff Reinitz of The Courier, Man Arrested for Attack on Woman. Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly attacking a woman outside the Isle Casino Hotel Waterloo on Thursday. Waterloo police arrested Nurseus Adonile Artisani, age 50, formerly known as Roger Joseph Hofer Jr., on charges of willful injury causing serious injury. Bond was set at $25,000. Police said the woman earlier threw a drink at him on the casino floor, and he left and waited for her to exit. When she left around 11.55 p.m., Artisani punched her in the face and kicked her in the head while she was down, witnesses told police. According to court records, police and paramedics found the woman bleeding from the mouth on the ground near the front door to the casino. She was taken to Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center, and doctors found she had a broken jaw and facial bones, missing teeth, and a cut on her ear, records state. She was then transferred to University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City for further treatment. Artisani was found near the front desk and was detained. Court records show Artisani has a lengthy history of assault convictions, with the most recent being a May 2020 incident at the Blackhawk County Jail, where he allegedly slammed another inmate's head into a wall, threw him to the floor, and punched and kneed him in the head. He was also convicted of a March 2020 incident where he attacked another jail inmate, punching and kneeing the victim, and then kicking him in the head while he was on the floor, records state. He also has convictions for assaulting a person at a hospital in March 2020, another jail inmate in April 2018, and a hospital nurse in January of 2017. Also on the Cedar Valley page is a story written by Donald Pomnitz of The Courier, NAG Talks Ag Strengths, Dateline Waterloo. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag was the guest speaker for the Waterloo Rotary Club's Rural Urban Day Luncheon on Monday. He discussed the current state of agriculture in Iowa, along with some of the challenges facing it. Having returned from a trip to South Korea and Japan, Nag explained that overseas trade remains strong, with Iowa being number two in the nation in regards to the value of exported goods. He said California is number one, Iowa's number two. How many people live in California? 33 million people. How many people live in Iowa? 3.3 million. I think we're doing all right. As far as the issues facing Iowa farmers, Nag listed many of the same problems plaguing other industries, including inflation and snags in the supply chain. However, he identified the workforce shortage as the biggest threat to the agricultural sector. He said, I still think perhaps the most important issue that we will deal with in the coming years will still remain the work that has to be done around people, the people that it takes to do the work of agriculture. We need more people working. We need more people working in agriculture. And we need more people in Iowa. Nag also spoke 
on the new Choose Iowa initiative aimed at promoting and marketing locally grown produce. The federal farm bill was an additional topic of discussion, including how both U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from Michigan, and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, a Republican of California, would want it passed. In all seriousness, he says, I believe we will have a farm bill this calendar year. I don't think we'll have it by the end of September. There's a lot of that has to be done, but I think we'll have it by the end of the calendar year. Nag explained that farm bills usually have bipartisan support, which will be especially important now with Republicans in control of the U.S. House of Representatives. After speaking, Nag took time to answer questions from the audience with topics ranging from immigration to CO2 pipelines and eminent domain. On the latter topic, Nag expressed hesitation about invoking eminent domain in large amounts, but he said that the reduction of carbon emissions is now a part of the conversation, whatever the impact the pipelines may have, noting that it was brought up by potential Korean and Japanese investors. He said, whether you like it or not, or agree with it or not, that whole conversation about carbon intensity in agriculture is happening, and it's not all government-driven. Some of it is very much private sector and market-driven. Here's a story written by Amy Malone of The Courier. It says, Bremer County Board approves, or rather adopts, pipeline rules. Dateline Waverly. Bremer County's land use ordinance regulating carbon dioxide pipelines will become law soon. The Board of Supervisors unanimously passed the new zoning rules on the third and final reading on Monday, according to Finance Director Cassandra Johansson. The ordinance establishes setbacks for any project and will become official upon its publication in a newspaper of regular circulation in the coming days. The adoption comes as Iowa House lawmakers consider House File 308, which, among other things, would require companies to be in line with all local zoning ordinances and blocks the projects until a federal regulator announces new safety regulations. The heart of the proposed state legislation is a requirement that easements be voluntarily obtained along 90% of the miles of the pipeline's proposed path before eminent domain is sought. An expectation exists that governments are vulnerable to a lawsuit because changes to the rules are being considered after three firms proposing to build in Iowa have already made investments in their respective projects. None of them are done deals, but as the companies are in the middle of working to obtain a hazardous liquid permit, which will come from the Iowa Utilities Board. Navigator CO2 is the company proposing to build a carbon pipeline through Butler, Floyd, Bremer, Buchanan, Hardin, Franklin, Fayette, and Delaware counties. Navigator representatives were present at the first two readings, but not the third said Johansson, who said they're not indicated whether the company intends to challenge the ordinance in court. A company spokesperson did not immediately respond to an email requesting comment. The minimum separation distances proposed are city limits of an incorporated city, which would be two miles, church, school, nursing, and 
long-term care facilities or hospitals, half a mile, public park, conservation area, sensitive area, or public recreation area, half a mile, occupied structure, half a mile, animal feeding operation facility, 1,000 feet, electric power generating facility with a name plate capacity of 5 megawatts or more, and electric transmission line operating at 69 kilovolts or more, an electronic transmission substation, a public drinking water treatment plant, or a public wastewater treatment plant, 1,000 feet, and private water supply wells, 200 feet. The county's new ordinance also comes with a slew of emergency response and hazard mitigation planning requirements. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, February 28th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Let's start by looking at the shorter death notices. Betty Jean Greenwood Wilson, age 91, of Independence, died Thursday, February 23rd, at the Buchanan County Health Center in Independence. Arrangements by the Rife Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory in Independence. Dennis Dean Horner, age 78, of Hampton, died Saturday, February 25th, at his home. Arrangements, Council Woodley Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Hampton. Marvin Dwayne Morris, age 86, died Sunday, February 26th. Arrangements will be with the Rife Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory. And Millie Saffold, age 101 of Waterloo, died Sunday, February 26th at Unity Point Allen. Arrangements will be made by the Sanders Funeral Service. Now to the longer, more detailed obituaries. Lawrence G. Mayer, age 85, a resident of Davenport, died Saturday, February 25th at the Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House in Bettendorf, surrounded by his family at the time of his passing. Funeral services and mass of Christian burial will be celebrated at 10.30, Thursday morning, March 2nd, at St. Paul the Apostle Catholic Church in Davenport. The mass will be live-streamed by visiting Lauren's obituary at www.hmdfuneralhome.com. Burial will be at the Mount Calvary Cemetery in Davenport. Visitation will be held Wednesday from 4 till 6 p.m. at the Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport with the rosary prayed at 345 that all are invited to join. They say feel free to wear Hawkeye attire. There will be additional visitation time Thursday in the gathering space at the church from 9.30 until 10.30 a.m. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Knights of Columbus Tootsie Roll Drive. Also, Cornelius Wilbur Engelkus, affectionately known as Connie Whip, Corny, Big Papa or Coach, was born on July 18, 1925 in Parkersburg. His visitation will be held on Tuesday, February 28th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the St. Paul United Methodist Church in LaPorte City. The funeral service will be held on Wednesday, March 1st at 10.30 a.m. at the church. Burial will follow the funeral service at the Westview Cemetery in LaPorte City. Memorials may be made in Wolper's name to your local Lions Club. Locke Funeral Home in LaPorte City is caring for Wolper and his family. John 
Becker, age 84, of Old Wine, passed away February 25th at Old Wine Health Care Center. Visitation will be held at Geilenfeld Bueller Funeral Home on Tuesday, February 28th from 4 to 7 p.m. with a rosary preceding visitation at 345. Funeral services will be held Wednesday, March 1st at 10.30 a.m. at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Old Wine with internment at Woodlawn Cemetery in Old Wine. Lunch will follow at the Knights of Columbus Hall. Memorials may be directed to the family for donation to charities of the family's choice. Now let's move on to the sports page and a story written by Jim Nelson of The Courier, which says the end comes too soon. Dateline Des Moines. Perhaps the greatest run in Waterloo West girls basketball history came to a premature end Monday. Saddled with foul trouble and challenged by a patient and efficient Ankeny Centennial squad, the Warhawks dropped their Class 5A state tournament opener 60-51 to at Wells Fargo Arena. In its fourth consecutive state tournament appearance, West led early, but the Jaguars used a 9-0 run midway through the second quarter and did not trail over the final 27 minutes to end the Wahawks' state championship hope. West coach Dr. Anthony Pappas said, Today was not our day. Credit Ankeny Centennial. They had a great defensive game plan and shot the ball well. Aggressive early, the 22-2 Wahawks held the advantage, leading 6-2 and 12-9, but as the first half progressed, star players Sahara Williams, Hallie Pook, and C.C. Moore all picked up multiple fouls. Forced to sit back farther in its zone trap defense, West watched as a patient Ankeny Centennial picked the defense apart for easy looks. The Jaguars, at 18-6, and led 20-15 after one quarter and 29-24 at halftime. Williams said, Nothing really went well for us in that game. They played well, probably one of the best games they played all season. The start of the game was by far the best West played. Pook had back-to-back steals and driving layups to give the Wahogs an early 4-0 lead. Another steal and driving a layup by Williams made it 6-2. West led for much of the first quarter as a pair of Pook free throws made it 12-9 with 3.22 left. But McKenna Clark hit a three-pointer to tie it at 12, and that started that 9-0 Jaguars run that put Centennial in control. A Pook jumper finally snapped the Jaguar run with 1.22 left in the quarter. It was 2015 Centennial at the first quarter break. Tilly Smith hit a three-pointer to open the second, giving the Jaguars their biggest lead at 23.15, just 55 seconds into the second. Pook said they played great. A lot of credit to them. They picked us apart on defense. They skipped the ball, tossing to the post, and with early... Deep fouls, that is hard to guard. Again, credit to them. A poke three-pointer and a Williams steal and layup pulled West to within three, and a Naya McGee layup on a great pass from Pook with 2.39 to go in the first half made it 27-24. West had a shot to tie it, but Williams missed a three from the top of the key, and Centennial led by five at halftime. Pappas said, We weathered the storm in the second had the ball to start the third and didn't execute. They started to widen the lead, and it was 6-10, to 6-10. They are real patient. Don't turn the ball over, and they execute. That is centennial. Very disciplined. 
West trailed by just eight after Polk's three-pointer with 4.17 left in the third quarter, but Williams picked up her fourth foul seconds later, and that put the Warhawks in a real bind. West still battled, and a pook bucket and a pair of free throws by Williams pulled West to within six with 6.39 left in the game. However, the Warhawks would make no further runs, and the Jaguars would make 13 of 15 free throws down the stretch. Coach Papa said, We dug a hole early, and we couldn't recover once we got into foul trouble. Proud of our players and everything they've done. Our seniors have accomplished a tremendous amount. They are unparalleled in what they have accomplished. They won 84-85 games, had four state tournament trips, four conference titles. The loss ends the careers of two of the greatest players to wear the old rose in black. Pook, headed for Bradley, is the all-time scoring leader in West history with more than 2,000 points. She said, obviously we didn't want to go out this way. Pook finished with 24 points, 3 assists, and 3 steals in the game and went on to say, Honestly, this is the best time of the year and always look forward to it. It has been fun to be here four years in a row and it means a lot to us. Williams, who received a huge hug from Oklahoma head coach Jenny Bandasek, her future collegiate coach, in the hallway following the game, finished with more than 1,500 points and 700 rebounds. While she didn't have her normal offensive game, Williams' stat line in her final prep game was still impressive. 11 points, 13 rebounds, 6 assists, and 5 steals. She said, I'm kind of speechless. I didn't think it would end this soon. She will remember everything, she says. They motivated me. I've played with three girls since the fourth grade, so it is kind of emotional knowing we will get to go on our separate ways in a few months. In their tenure, Polk and Williams led the Warhawks to a pair of quarterfinal appearances, a semifinal as a sophomore, and a state runner-up finish just last March. West also graduates senior three-year starter C.C. Moore, who will play collegiately at Central College, guard Nia McGee, and forward Isabel Lederman, who played central roles for West the past four seasons. Today in the What's Up column, there will be some high school boys basketball games, the Class 4A sub-state final. Waterloo West versus West Des Moines Valley will be played at Marshalltown at 6.30. Also, the Class 4A sub-state final with Cedar Falls versus Ankeny Centennial will be played at Marshalltown tonight at 8 o'clock. Back we go now to the news section where there is a story written by Tom Barton of The Courier that says, Our kids are not for sale. Dateline, Des Moines. Union workers from across Iowa gathered Monday at the state capitol to protest proposals making their way through the legislative loosening state child labor laws. Charlie Wishman, the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor, said, We are drawing a line in the sand now. Our kids are not for sale. We are not. We are not selling our kids out to multinational corporations for profit and cheap labor. Our kids are not for sale. The latter became a rallying chant as the union workers marched to deliver letters to the House and Senate Republican leadership, outlining their concerns and urging them to kill the bills. 
Among other provisions, the legislation would let teens as young as 14 request a waiver from the directors of the state workforce and education agencies to work as apprentices as part of work-based learning programs in jobs formerly off-limits as being hazardous, including manufacturing, mining, construction, or processing, among others. And it provides employers immunity from civil liability if a child is injured, becomes ill, or dies on a job that is part of a work-based learning program. Republicans also approved the proposals in subcommittee, and they've said the bills would help businesses find workers in a tight labor market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig and the bill's manager in the Senate, argued concerns raised about putting children in harm's way are overblown and that the measure is aimed at updating an old law with reasonable standards. He said there's language in there for schools and employers to work together to try and teach some skills and to get children out into places where they can become enjoyable and start looking forward to a career. Iowa chapters of employer lobby groups representing small businesses, home builders, and hotels and restaurants back the proposals. Democrats and labor unions contend the measures weaken child labor protections and allow corporations already profiting from widespread use of illegal child labor to legalize their exploitation. They note one of the country's largest cleaning services for food processing companies was recently fined more than $1.5 million following an investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor, which found Packers Sanitation Services employed more than 100 children as young as 13 years old to clean dangerous meat process equipment, including at 13 meat plaking plants in eight states including Nebraska, Minnesota, and Kansas. Children were found to be using caustic cleaning chemicals and cleaning dangerous power-driven equipment like skull splitters and razor-sharp bone saws, according to the Associated Press. These proposals fly in the face of common sense as well as decades of research showing that hazardous jobs and excessive work hours can damage teens' health, development, and education, Wishman said in a statement, adding that the proposed changes also directly contradict federal labor law, which prohibits children under 18 from working in meatpacking plants and bars. 14- and 15-year-olds from working past 9 p.m. in the summer and 7 p.m. during the school year. The proposal will also make legal these things, allowing youths as young as 14 to work six-hour nightly shifts in industrial laundries or meat freezers during the school year and even longer hours during summer months allowing 15-year-olds to work on an assembly production line or loading or unloading shipments of items up to 50 pounds. It would allow 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol. Everything in our plant gets moved either by a fork truck, a crane, vacuum, or hooks, said Sandy Conway, a member of the United Steelworkers Local 105, who works at Arconic in Riverdale near Davenport. She says that's no place for 14- or 15-year-old kids to be. Conway said she has two 
16-year-old granddaughters and two 14-year-old granddaughters who, she said, have no business in that environment. Each of the bills, Senate File 167 and House Study Bill 134, has passed out of subcommittee, but neither has been approved by the chamber's respective committees. Ryan Drew, with Operating Engineers Local 150, and Jesse Cates, the Secretary-Treasurer and Business Agent with Teamsters Local 238 in Cedar Rapids, called on legislators to get to work on solving problems facing working families and their children, including low wages, wage theft, unable work, unsafe work, lack of access to affordable child care, and underfunded public schools. Case said, don't relieve employers from liability when kids get hurt. Strengthen work comp laws that you've weakened because our kids are not for sale. Don't cut school funding and send our kids to work in the factory. That's the exact opposite of the direction our state should be moving in. From the Cedar Valley page, we have a story written by Jeff Reinitz of uh, The Courier, which says, Chase ends with arrest. Dateline, Cedar Falls. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly leading Cedar Falls police on a high-speed chase earlier in the month. Patrol officers spotted a 2015 Ford Mustang traveling west at 50 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone on West 1st Street near Catherine Street at around 12.45 the morning of February 9th. The Mustang didn't pull over and ran a stoplight and numerous stop signs as the chase headed down West 4th Street and Pheasant Drive, looped through Paddington Drive and Barry Hill Road, and then headed up Union Road before finally hitting 100 miles per hour on Highway 57 and disappearing, according to court records. On Wednesday, the driver, 22-year-old Tyler David Rindells, was arrested for felony eluding, interference, and several traffic citations. He was released pending trial. We do have some metro briefs you might be interested in today. First of all, Fletcher Avenue floodgates close. Dateline, Waterloo. The city's street department closed the floodgates at Fletcher Avenue due to the rising water in Blackhawk Creek. The forecasted water levels are predicted to rise to 14.8 feet on Tuesday, which will result in minor flooding. The gates will remain closed until water levels recede. Also, the Cedar Valley Sportsplex has announced that, along with the Community Foundation of Northeast Iowa and the Waterloo Leisure Services Commission, they are now accepting applications for the Margaret Short Memorial Scholarship, up to the amount of $1,000. The scholarship is available to residents of Blackhawk County who graduated from a high school in the county and are full-time students at least in their second year of college. They need to be enrolled as of the fall of 2023 in accredited institutions of higher education with a declared major in leisure services or related fields. A panel of leisure services professionals will select the winner based on submitted materials. Students can pick up applications at the Cedar Valley Sportsplex. Now, eligible students must complete the scholarship application form and return it to the Courtney Jackson to no later than 5 p.m. on April 10th. All applications require a letter of recommendation by a professional member of the Leisure Services Department or related field of the applicant's school. Also, Pathway of Hope, 
a Salvation Army of Waterloo Cedar Falls program, is holding a greeting card fundraiser featuring four designs submitted by local artists. The year-long program assists families with children in overcoming challenges like unemployment, unstable housing, and lack of education. Its goal is to lead them down the path of increased stability and self-sufficiency. The fundraiser will help to sustain the program. Purchase cars by March 19th to take advantage of pre-sale pricing, which is an 8-pack for $10 or a 16-pack for $18. Beginning March 20th, prices increase $4. Envelopes are included. Regina Lambrecht, the social ministry's coordinator, said in a news release, Pathway of Hope helps families make big changes in their lives. As a care manager, I work closely with program participants and have seen how increasingly hard they work on their goals and their commitment to a better future for themselves and their children. The artists are donating their artwork. VGM's Community Giving Committee is sponsoring the fundraiser, and Palmer's Family Fund is providing gift certificates for the winning artists. Winning designs were chosen by the Salvation Army's Development Committee and VGM's Community Giving Committee. To purchase or for additional information, you can contact Katie Harn, and here's her phone number. It's 319-235-9358. And here's a story written by Maria Kuyper, Dateline Waterloo. Hidden behind a large tree on Lafayette Street sits a worn-down house. The once-inhabited structure at 207 Lafayette Street is now listed as one of the state's most endangered properties, according to Preservation Iowa. The organization recognizes historic buildings and advocates for their preservation. preservation. The house was nominated by the Waterloo Historic Preservation Commission, which works to recognize, promote, and preserve historic sites and cultural heritage in the city. Built in 1913, the four-bedroom and one-bathroom is described as an American four-square. The hallmarks of this type of house are its box shape, wide porch, and large windows. They were most popular from 1895 to 1930. Ed Otteson is a project architect with Kirk Gross Company and a member of the commission who said the house utilizes colonial revival features and the combination of that and the four square makes it kind of unique. Otteson also said there have been few changes to the exterior of the house. And here's a story written by Jeff Reinitz, Stateline Evansdale. An Evansdale woman's $30,000 prize is at the center of a lottery fraud investigation. 63-year-old Sandra Jean Crow turned in a winning candy cane crossword scratch ticket at the Iowa Lottery's regional office in Cedar Rapids on November 7th. The ticket had been purchased for $3 at the Quick Star on Fletcher Avenue in Waterloo. Now, authorities allege Crow wasn't the actual owner of the winning ticket, and she served as a straw man to shield the real winner. The person who bought the crossword lottery ticket, according to court records, was Alvin Hans Larson III, who is Crow's roommate. The 45-year-old Larson allegedly didn't want to claim the money himself because he feared the winnings would be applied to outstanding debts and liens, including $919 he owed to the city of Evansdale, and he would only get what was left, according to records. 
Jeff Reinitz also has a story uh, in Waterloo that says the Blacks building in downtown Waterloo may be headed for an online auction after a negotiated deal with a potential buyer fell through earlier this year. The nine-story historic high-rise at 501 Sycamore Street is currently listed on the 10X auction site with an opening bid of a million dollars. John Viggers of Cushman and Wakefield is the broker. The building or bidding is scheduled to begin Tuesday and run through Thursday. With its elegant entryway and first-floor restaurant, 501 Sycamore Street boasts an eclectic tenant roster and some of the most eye-popping interior and exterior designs in Waterloo's CBD, which is the Central Business District, reads the listing listing, which boasts about the building's quick access to the U.S. Highway 63 and 218 interchange. Proceeds from the sale will be used to pay debts for Black's operator Midtown Development, and Midtown Development attorney Ronald Martin said the online venue is the best option to bring the highest price and best value. Jeff Reinitz also has a story on the page of a Waterloo woman, who won't have to go to jail for setting her boyfriend on fire in May, but a judge has ordered them to remain apart. This is the first time I'm going to give probation for someone that set someone on fire, District Court Judge David Stott said February 16th, as he granted Kimberly Rochelle Epps, 50, a suspended sentence. Epps was charged with willful injury causing bodily injury and domestic abuse causing bodily injury, and she pleaded guilty. Authorities allege Epps and Demetrius Martin were involved in an argument in their Thompson Avenue apartment around 1 o'clock the morning of May 14th. During the argument, Epps allegedly poured rubbing alcohol or hand sanitizer on him and ignited it with a lighter. Martin suffered secondary burns to 10% to 15% of his body with injuries to his arms, back, and head. He was taken to Unity Point Health Allen Hospital for treatment. And here's a story that says, Semi-driver arrested in watermelon crash. Dateline Waterloo. A semi-driver has been arrested in connection with a Monday night crash that littered watermelons over Interstate 380. Police said they found alcoholic beverage containers inside the cab of Andrew Koshmark's Volvo truck. And preliminary breath tests indicated he was over the legal limit, according to court records. The 35-year-old Koshmark of Northport, Florida, was arrested for first offense operating while intoxicated, and bond was set at $2,000. The semi was heading north on I-380 and approaching the Mitchell Avenue intersection when the driver lost control, entered the median, and bumped against the post for a highway sign. The semi then continued on, sliding sideways and hitting another signpost. The post sliced the trailer in two, and the cab rolled onto its side, according to the accident reports. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, February 28th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.